You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches Hey everyone, welcome to the 210th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. At the end of the last show, Confederate General Braxton Bragg had been forced to abandon his position at Munfordville, Kentucky on September 20th, 1862. As y'all recall, we said that Bragg's army had been in a fantastic tactical situation at Munfordville, but logistically it was in serious trouble. Yep. Uh, At Mumfordville, Bragg's Confederates stood squarely between Don Carlos Buell's Federal Army and its supply base at Louisville. But as Bragg's men and animals had marched north, they'd suffered severely for want of water in the worsening drought, and at Mumfordville, they were also fast running out of food and forage. The bottom line was that if the rebels stayed in Mumfordville more than a few days, they'd begin to starve. And so on September 20th, just three days after capturing the place, Bragg abandoned Munfordville and turned northeast toward Bardstown, where he expected to resupply and link up with the other Confederate general who figures into our story, Kirby Smith. When Bragg abandoned Munfordville, Buell's road to Louisville was open, and the Army of the Ohio hustled northward toward Kentucky's largest city, reaching it safely on September 25th. While Bragg and Buell had maneuvered northward, Kirby Smith's small rebel army had spread out and secured north-central Kentucky. Detachments pushed north and west to within 10 miles of both Louisville and Cincinnati. Smith's victory at the Battle of Richmond and subsequent occupation of Lexington had caused considerable consternation in the states north of the Ohio River. Henry Heath's division of Confederates had arrived south of Cincinnati during the first week of September and stayed until September 18th. Heath was content to probe the city's defenses with his 6,000 men, but he didn't risk an assault. Nonetheless, his presence sparked a panic in Cincinnati and in southern Ohio. Ohio Governor David Todd sent several newly recruited regiments directly to the city, and local civilians, including a sizable number of free blacks, dug trenches around Cincinnati and just across the Ohio River at Covington, Kentucky. Downstream in Louisville, the federal situation was equally chaotic. Colonel Scott's Confederate cavalry probed the city's eastern outskirts on September 5th, and the effect was electric. The remnants of Bull Nelson's command had staggered into Louisville after their defeat at the Battle of Richmond, and the men had been put to work digging trenches and putting the city into a defensible condition. 
Bill Nelson was in Louisville, but was sidelined because he'd been wounded in the leg at Richmond. Kentucky's military governor, Jeremiah Boyle, was making noises about declaring martial law, which would only inflame the situation. In desperation, Department Commander Horatio Wright cast about for a suitable officer to bring order out of the growing confusion, and he hit on an unusual solution. Wright took 40-year-old regular Army Captain Charles C. Gilbert, and, without any legal authority to do so, Wright promoted Gilbert on the spot to acting Major General and gave him command of the troops in Louisville. Wright's reasoning for this unusual move remains murky, but he clearly had more faith in a fellow veteran of the old army than in any of the Union officers who had been beaten at Richmond. At any rate, the two stars Gilbert proudly and immediately began to wear would become one of the most controversial elements of the Kentucky campaign. After Wright put him in charge of Louisville's defense, Gilbert actually managed to restore some order to the situation. Rookie regiments from the Midwest poured into the city, and by the middle of September, over 20,000 men were on hand. While Louisville and Cincinnati buzzed with activity, the situation over at Cumberland Gap had taken on the tense quiet of a siege. As y'all recall, Kirby Smith had bypassed Cumberland Gap when he marched north from Tennessee into Kentucky, although he had left a sizable detachment behind to keep an eye on the federal garrison there. Since being isolated on August 20th, the Union commander at Cumberland Gap, George Morgan, had been content with making limited probes of the nearby Confederate positions. Cut off from the telegraph, messages had to be sent by way of courier over rugged mountain roads to Cincinnati. Morgan's messages could still get through, since although the 9,000 Confederates of Carter Stevenson's division had the Federal garrison surrounded, The rebel ring around Cumberland Gap was strongest to the south, while roads to the northwest and northeast were only lightly guarded. Stevenson knew he didn't have the numbers to make a direct assault on the Gap, so he was content to wait out the siege. George Morgan's garrison of federal soldiers at Cumberland Gap was officially known as the 7th Division of the Department of the Ohio and numbered about 7,000 men. The division was comprised of four brigades led by Colonel John DeCourcy and Brigadier Generals Absalom Baird, James Spears, and Samuel Carter. DeCourcy and Baird were Northerners, while Carter and Spears were both from Tennessee. In fact, a sizable number of the men in the 7th Division came from Unionist East Tennessee, and many had relatives serving in the Confederate Army. Cumberland Gap itself was defended by a series of forts that capped the high ground overlooking the Wilderness Road and the pass. Depending on where he was posted, a Federal soldier in the garrison could be standing in Virginia, or in Tennessee, or in Kentucky. George Morgan was initially confident that his garrison, manning the Gap's formidable defenses, could withstand a long siege, expecting to hold out at least five weeks. On August 19th, the day before the Confederates cut the Wilderness Road, 150 wagons arrived at the Gap loaded with provisions. Nevertheless, as a precaution, the garrison went on half rations. Both sides stayed guardedly active as August turned into September, 
Stevenson's pickets often skirmished with the Federal outpost, but the Confederates made no major attacks. At the same time, to avoid a passive defense, Morgan periodically sent his men out on raids to keep the rebels on edge and gather information from prisoners. In early September, a captured Confederate dispatch brought Morgan the unwelcome news that John Hunt Morgan's cavalry was beginning to operate in the mountains of eastern Kentucky, while a sizable force of rebels was reportedly moving into Kentucky from southwest Virginia and advancing toward Cumberland Gap. Meanwhile, the federal garrison's supplies began to run out. The bread supply was exhausted on September 6th, and other necessities soon ran dangerously low. On September 12th, the post quartermaster reported that the feed for the horses and mules was almost gone. That was dire news, because if the animals starved to death, the 7th Division would lose its mobility and would never be able to break out and leave the gap. George Morgan now faced a critical decision. On September 14th, he met with Generals Baird, Spears, and Carter, and with his chief engineer, Lieutenant William Craighill. After considering the situation carefully, all present agreed with Craighill's assessment, quote, that in view of all the circumstances of the case, the position should be evacuated. Having made the decision to evacuate Cumberland Gap, the next question was where to go. A march on the old wilderness road toward Lexington would mean a likely encounter with Kirby Smith's entire force. The only other alternative was to go through the mountains to the Ohio River, 200 miles to the north. This route led away from Kirby Smith's main strength, which was its chief advantage. But this option also meant marching through a wild and rugged region, with little food or forage to be found, moving over narrow mountain roads that could be easily blocked by the enemy. Despite the risk, Morgan decided to try to bring his whole force out to the mountains and reach the Ohio River. On September 16th, orders went out to the garrison to prepare for a major movement on the 17th. Anything that couldn't be taken along was to be destroyed. Lieutenant Craighill was given a special mission. He was to demolish the road through the pass itself and thus block the road from the south so as to delay the Confederate pursuit. That evening, the first wagon train set out for Manchester, 60 miles to the north. The next day, September 17th, the federal garrison at Cumberland Gap performed the delicate task of preparing for evacuation while trying to keep the Confederates unaware of what was happening. Men packed wagons and stuffed their personal belongings in packs. The post buildings were prepared for destruction. Four large cannon that couldn't be taken along were spiked and pushed over a cliff. At Morgan's headquarters, the route was finalized. The division would leave at 8 p.m. that evening, pause at Manchester, then move north by northeast, aiming for Greenupsburg on the Ohio River. As darkness fell, the men of the 7th Division made their final preparations to leave. Then at 8 o'clock, the garrison formed up and set out for Manchester. Spears' East Tennessee regiments were the last to depart, and many of the men were bitter at the thought of having to march north and turn their backs on their homes. By 10 p.m., the gap was almost deserted except for 200 hand-picked soldiers commanded by the post-provo marshal, Colonel George W. Gallup. Gallup's detachment was to set fire to the various buildings on the post. As they did so, one participant later recalled how very quickly, quote, the little valley at the foot of the gap, encircled by mountains, was one sea of flame. 
At this point, the Confederates became aware that something was up and probed toward the gap, but Gallup's pickets held them off. After midnight, the area was rocked by explosions as Craig Hill set off charges to blow up the forts and the powder magazine. The engineers' explosions also successfully blocked the south road to the pass. As dawn approached, Craig Hill and Gallup's detachment marched away, and so after more than four weeks of siege, the Federals had evacuated Cumberland Gap. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. By September 19th, the entire garrison and its 500 wagons had arrived at Manchester. Stevenson's Confederate infantry had been delayed back at the Gap, but Rebel cavalry nipped at the Federal Column's heels. The 7th Division couldn't tarry for long at Manchester, so George Morgan prepared for the next part of the march. North of town, the road forked. One road led northwest toward Richmond and Lexington, while the other ran north toward the hamlet of Proctor on the Kentucky River. John Hunt Morgan's rebel horsemen were known to be active in that area, so the Federals would have to get to the bridge at Proctor before the enemy cavalry destroyed it. And so, after pausing for a day at Manchester to reorganize, the 7th Division moved out. The column snaked for several miles along the narrow mountain roads. Meanwhile, in Lexington, on September 19th, Kirby Smith received word that George Morgan had abandoned Cumberland Gap. Also on that day came news of Bragg's success at Munfordville and requests for assistance in moving against Louisville. But George Morgan's escape from the Gap worried Kirby Smith. In Smith's mind, this breakout by 7,000 Yankees represented a serious threat. Torn between two opposing directions, literally, as from the west came Bragg's request for assistance, and from the east came the news that Morgan's Federals were on the loose, Kirby Smith compromised as best he could. In a flurry of orders from Lexington, Smith dispatched the 4th Division, once again under the command of a recovered Patrick Claiborne, west toward Shelbyville and Louisville, 
a supply convoy also moved west toward Bardstown. Meanwhile, Heath's 2nd Division was recalled from the outskirts of Cincinnati and sent east from Lexington to Mount Sterling. John Hunt Morgan was ordered to take his cavalry to Irvine, some 26 miles west of Proctor. Stevenson was instructed to move north from Cumberland Gap and pursue the Federals as best he could. Kirby Smith expected George Morgan to advance toward Richmond and Lexington and seek battle, so his orders to Heath and John Hunt Morgan reflected that expectation, effectively concentrating the Confederates to the northwest of Proctor, blocking the Yankees' expected path. But George Morgan wasn't headed for Richmond or Lexington. He was headed for the Ohio River. When the Federals reached Proctor on September 21st, they were relieved to find the bridge over the Kentucky River still standing. They learned that John Hunt Morgan's rebel cavalry had been through the place the night before, but hadn't burned the bridge. George Morgan was surprised by the lack of opposition. He would later write, quote, I fully expected to be met by the enemy in force at Proctor, where the deep and abrupt banks would have rendered the passage of the Kentucky River perilous and difficult if disputed. We accordingly moved by two nearly parallel roads, and the two columns reached Proctor almost simultaneously. I at once threw a brigade with a battery across the river and gave the command half a day's rest. Kirby Smith's orders to John Hunt Morgan had effectively moved the Confederate cavalry 26 miles out of the way and thus denied the rebels their first opportunity to stop the 7th Division's northward march. After a short rest, the Federal Column resumed its trek. The next stop was the hamlet of Hazel Green, 30 miles away. John Hunt Morgan had realized Kirby Smith's error and now moved back eastward as fast as he could. Having missed the Yankees at Proctor, Morgan had to content himself with setting his horsemen to harassing the flanks and rear of the Federal Column. The Federal commander later reported, quote, The route to Hazel Green was very difficult. The ridge was almost entirely destitute of water, and where it did exist, it was found in small quantities, in holes 80 or 100 feet among cliffs. The North Fork Road had been destroyed by the spring and winter rains, but water there was plentiful. End quote. Baird's and de Courcy's brigades escorted the wagons and, art- and artillery along the North Fork Road, while Spears and Carter's Tennesseans moved along the ridge roads above. Fighting both the rugged terrain and John Hunt Morgan's cavalry took a toll on the Federals, but they made inexorable progress northward. The 7th Division reached Hazel Green on September 23rd and paused there one day for some much-needed rest. During the next stage of the march, 12 miles from Hazel Green to West Liberty, there was a redoubled aggressiveness from the Confederates. The rebel horsemen attacked the Federals' 6th Tennessee Infantry at the rear of the column, killing six men and scattering 80 to 100 head of cattle before being driven off. Meanwhile, Confederate infantry was closing in, but failed to move fast enough to catch the Yankees while they were strung out on the mountain roads. Morgan's Federals staggered into West Liberty on September 25th and paused two days to rest. The 43 miles from West Liberty to Grayson proved to be the toughest part of the march, thanks to the relentless rebel cavalry. 
John Hunt Morgan's horsemen got around in front of the Federal Column and immediately set about trying to stop the 7th Division's progress. The Confederate cavalry used every means at their disposal, including barricading roads and laying ambushes. The Federals had no choice but to barrel through this gauntlet. George Morgan later described how, quote, frequent skirmishes took place, and it several times happened that while the one Morgan was clearing out the obstructions at the entrance to a gorge, the other Morgan was blocking the exit from the same gorge with enormous rocks and felled trees. In the work of clearing away these obstructions, 1,000 men, wielding axes, saws, picks, spades, and block and tackle, labored with skill and courage. In one instance, they were forced to cut a new road through the forest for a distance of four miles in order to turn a blockade of one mile. John Hunt Morgan's Confederate horsemen succeeded in slowing the column's pace, but the Federals also struck back, as George Morgan later reported, quote, Whenever opportunity offered, we assumed the offensive and attacked the enemy while he was engaged in blockading the road. On three successive evenings, so closely did we push him that we drove him from his hot supper. This exhausting, deadly game of cat and mouse lasted five days until the Federals reached Grayson on the evening of October 1st. Earlier that day, Morgan's Confederate horsemen had been recalled by Kirby Smith due to developments elsewhere. Two days later, the Federal Column reached Greenupsburg on the Ohio River, and the 7th Division crossed over into Ohio and to safety. We shortened this episode a bit due to both of us coughing and our voices being a bit rough, but we hope we still conveyed a sense of the fact that the men of George Morgan's 7th Division had made one of the truly epic marches of the Civil War. In 16 days, they had covered 219 miles through some of the wildest, most rugged terrain between the eastern seaboard and the Mississippi River. Along the way, they battled not only the Confederates, but the mountains and also dwindling supplies. George Morgan outwitted his opponents at every turn and succeeded in foiling John Hunt Morgan's persistent attempts to stop the 7th Division's march. Since leaving Cumberland Gap, the Federals lost 80 men killed, wounded, or missing, but came out with every one of their guns and all their baggage. While this odyssey through the mountains of eastern Kentucky had played out, 200 miles to the west, a very different drama had been unfolding as Buell and Bragg maneuvered for advantage. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Contested Borderland, The Civil War in Appalachian, Kentucky and Virginia by Brian D. McKnight. If you're interested in learning more about the war in the sparsely populated region around Cumberland Gap, then you really ought to check out McKnight's book, which not only looks at the military actions that took place there, but also the communities that were caught between conflicting loyalties. So that's Contested Borderland, The Civil War in Appalachian, Kentucky, and Virginia by Brian D. McKnight. You can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Just yesterday, we released the 60th episode that we've done for the members of the Strawfoot Brigade. 
In the last couple of shows, we've looked at the topic of war correspondence and also soldier correspondence. And in this last show, we looked at the wartime odyssey of the Memphis Appeal, which continued publication while staying one step ahead of the Union armies. Anyway, thanks to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Joshua, Edick, Pamela, and Matthias. And thanks to Gregory and Malcolm for their recent donations. Yep, thanks guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when hopefully we'll both be feeling better. But until then, take care. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye.